Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Nancy Ruiz, a PhD student in biomedical engineering under the supervision of Dr. Chris Schaefer. She's currently working in understanding vascular inflammation and capillary stalling in Alzheimer's disease mouse models. Originally from Bogota, Colombia, she attended undergraduate school at Universidad de los Andes, where she obtained her double major in physics and biology. She also enjoys science communication and has been involved in GradSwe, Society of Women Engineers, and GWIS, Graduate Women in Science. Nancy Ruiz, welcome to Tidbits of Research. I'd like to start by just taking this broad stroke on your research. You work in biomedical imaging, which is a subfield of biomedical engineering. Tell us a little bit about the kinds of questions people in this field are generally interested in answering. Sure. Um, Thank you very much for having me in your podcast. Um, Yes, I work on biomedical imaging. Uh, People who work in this field are mostly interested in how they can help with problems related with medical imaging. So uh, when you think about medical imaging, you probably think about x-rays or MRIs or CT scans, right? Um, So a lot of people work on the field of analyzing this type of images uh, coming from real patients. For example, the images that I work on are not about x-rays or MRIs or CT scans. I use a special type of microscopy. It's called multiphoton microscopy. And the cool thing about this uh, technology is that we can see very little things in the brain, like blood vessels, neurons, and we can see everything like in vivo. This technology is not used on humans. So right now, people use it on animals, for example, mice. I work with mice. Uh, And it allows us to have very detailed information about the brain. However, um, I was mentioning that it's biomedical imaging, right? So I use mouse models of a specific disease uh, to understand the mechanisms of that disease uh, through imaging. First of all, for, for maybe some of us who don't understand these things, what does in vivo mean? In vivo means that you can see real-time dynamics in the brain. For example, you can see how the blood cells are moving in the blood vessels, so you can actually measure blood flow in the brain. Uh, You can measure neuronal activity because the mouse is actually awake and it's alive. Yeah, it's breathing, so you can measure all sorts of things. And you're saying that this is not done on humans now. Um, Is that something that is in the cards in the future? Or is that something that can't be in the cards because of something about the process? That's a really cool question. I think that multiphoto microscopy can be used in humans probably in the future. The reason why it's not used in humans is that to look inside of the brain of the mouse with this technology, we actually have to gain optical access to the brain. Uh, so for that, we um, we kind of implant a window in the mouse brain. So we have to open the skull and we have to replace a little bit part of the skull with a glass window. And so the glass window gives us the optical access to see everything in the brain. 
but right now we cannot really put a glass window into a human. So um, I think that in the future, if we can figure out a way to look into the ma into the human brain without, you know, disrupting the skull or the brain or anything like that, then it will be possible to use this technology to gain access to the human brain. Um, there are a lot of techniques that can have access to the human brain without invasive procedures. Uh, for example, MRI or CT scans, all of those are used to, to look into the human brain. The only problem is that they lack the spatial resolution that we have in multifotomicroscopy. microscopy. We can see things that are a micron in size. So this is like very, very, very tiny, tiny things. Uh, unfortunately, the techniques that are used to look into the human brain don't really get this spatial resolution. So those are the challenges. So zooming in maybe a little bit more into your work, what kinds of questions motivate your research? You were saying that you're using these mouse models to maybe understand kind of human diseases. Yeah, so I specifically work on Alzheimer's disease and I use mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. And what I'm interested in understanding is what happens in the brain when we have accumulation of amyloid plaques. So for those of you who don't know, Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. And it starts because a protein in the brain starts to accumulate. This protein is called amyloid beta. Once the protein starts to accumulate, there is this cascade of events that eventually will trigger neurodegeneration and um, eventually death. And so one of the things that I study that are part of this cascade of events is a deficit in blood flow. And uh, we think that this deficit in blood flow uh, that, that actually happens in patients in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease uh, contributes to the neurodegeneration. So I am interested in understanding where this blood flow deficit is coming from and what can we do to stop it or kind of increase the blood flow that goes into the brain. What I do is that I use this technology to measure blood flow in the mouse, in, in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. And I try to tackle inflammatory uh, processes. I also try to reduce oxidative stress in the brain. And we have seen that by reducing all this inflammation that it's happening due to amyloid beta in the brain, uh, we can actually rescue blood flow. Is improving this blood flow a way to um, detect Alzheimer's maybe, or a way to like treat Alzheimer's? Yeah, so we think that by improving blood flow, that can serve as a therapeutic target for Alzheimer's disease in the future. So the reason why there isn't any drug or a cure of, or a treatment for this disease is because most of the therapeutics that are developed to treat it are focused on eliminating amyloid beta from the brain. Mm. Most of the drugs that have been developed just are antibodies that try to get rid of amyloid beta in the brain. But the thing is, amyloid beta is already too ingrained in the brain. It's kind of, it's a protein that it's aggregated and it's really hard to get rid of it. 
So that's why all these clinical trials have failed because none of those treatments actually have shown to be effective. But a lot of people right now are, are focusing on developing therapeutics to increase blood flow to the brain because once that you increase blood flow, you have better oxygen metabolism, you have better glucose metabolism. So this can all help the neurons work better, for example. And at least in mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, we have seen that after we rescue blood flow, we also see an improvement in cognition. So this brings me to another question, which is a very silly question, but you're, you're saying, right, you have a mouse model of Alzheimer's. And so the way you know that the mouse has Alzheimer's is because it has this accumulated protein, right? Because a lot of times it's a behavioral thing. So how do we know that, you know, mouse Alzheimer's is the same as like humans Alzheimer's? Yeah, that's a really cool question. There are two forms of Alzheimer's disease. The most common form is sporadic. So it means it's called late onset Alzheimer's disease. It's late onset because people in their 70s or 80s will start to get it. And we don't really know the cause of, of the late onset Alzheimer's disease. We think that a combination of risk factors are involved in in the development of the disease, for example, diabetes, hypertension, uh, a sedentary lifestyle, even the diet, like a high-fat diet, has been shown to contribute to the development of Alzheimer's disease. There are also a couple of genetic factors, uh, mutations, for example, in your APOE gene. APOE stands for apolipoprotein, which is basically an enzyme that carries like fats around the body. I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, that's uh, people who have mutations in this gene have a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's. Okay, but that's late onset and it accounts for 95% of the cases. And then the other 5%, it's called uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease and it is driven by actual genetic mutations. Um, the genetic mutations are in the APP gene and in the presenilin 1 gene. So, for example, the mouse model that I work on, it's called APPPS1, mouse model of Alzheimer's disease because it has a mutation in the APP gene and PS1 gene. So those, those mutations that happen in humans, we can also give these mutations to mice. And this is how we know the mice get Alzheimer's because we have modified their genome to express these mutations. And so once we know that they express the mutations, they start to develop the amyloid beta aggregation. They start to develop uh, cognitive deficits and a lot of the symptoms that humans have. But obviously it's a model. And as I mentioned, 95% of the cases are sporadic. So it's obviously something that's still very far away from, you know, the human case. But the thing is, it just helps us understand mechanisms. Uh, so that's why it's so important to work with mouse models because there are so many things that we cannot do with humans and that we just cannot understand in humans because we just simply cannot research <laughs> that much in humans. So that's what the mouse models are useful for. Could you maybe give an example of one of these kinds of insights that you were mentioning we have either figured out yet or maybe we're like trying to figure out or 
we're hoping we can figure out. For example, there are many mouse models that have different mutations, but that they have Alzheimer's. For example, I already mentioned like the model that I have expresses a lot of amyloid beta. There are a lot of other models that have different mutations and they express, for example, another protein that accumulates in Alzheimer's disease that it's called tau. And tau aggregation comes after amyloid aggregation. And tau is a protein that starts to accumulate in the neurons and the neurons start to die. This also contributes to neurodegeneration. So there are also mouse models that have this mutation and we have been able to understand for example, the interaction between amyloid beta and tau due to the mouse models. Uh, we have also been able to understand how inflammation in the brain happens when Alzheimer's disease is going on. Uh, we know that there is a ton of inflammation in the brain, and this inflammation also contributes to neurodegeneration. We also know about this blood flow deficit and how we can um, you know, rescue blood flow and try these therapeutics maybe in humans. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things that we have seen in mouse models that also humans have. And uh, a lot of these clinical trials have obviously taken that information to, um, to treat humans. Like uh, if you take a look at the latest antibody that was uh, produced to treat Alzheimer's disease, it has a lot of data first in mouse and then in humans. So this is sometimes like how, like how biomedical research works is that first you try to test your compound or your drug in mouse. And if it gives very good results, then you can probably test it in humans. So for me, honestly, I, I was reading that you were um, doing this research on Alzheimer's and I was instantly hooked. My, my grandpa had Alzheimer's. How did you get hooked on this kind of research direction? For me, it was kind of serendipitous. I don't have any family member with Alzheimer's disease, but I've always been very interested in medicine. The thing is that I am not a med student. I didn't go to med school. I actually studied physics in my undergrad, and I double major with biology. And I was looking for things that I could do with both of those like big chunks of knowledge. I have physics on one hand, biology on one hand, like what can I do? And so I started working in biophysics. Biophysics has a lot of research on microscopy, uh, developing new microscopy techniques to look into biological systems. And so I was initially hooked with the technology that I just mentioned, multifocal microscopy. And for my PhD, I was looking for a lab that was using this technology to study something related to medicine. And so the lab that I work on, we don't only work on Alzheimer's disease, we have projects on stroke, epilepsy, even cardiac disease, cancer, my lab does a bunch of stuff. So um, so when I was first interviewing my advisor, he like handed all these different options of projects. And I, I have to say that Alzheimer's was the first one that caught my attention because it's something that we just don't know much about. And there's so much to work on, specifically because we don't have a cure, we don't have a treatment, we have nothing. So... 
I thought it was pretty interesting and pretty cool to put that technology into play and try to understand something with with the tools that we had and and yeah that was that was what hooked me <laughs> if you could give your past say pre-cornell self a piece of advice what would you say my pre-cornell past <laughs> um i think that a lot of scientists suffer what it's called imposter syndrome. I come from, you know, a low-income country. I'm the first one in my family to do a PhD. Sometimes, you know, when you are in academia, you kind of feel that everyone is smarter than you and better than you. <laughs> and sometimes you question if the university actually made a, a mistake when they selected you to be a PhD student. And so I think that the advice that I would give myself is to trust in my abilities more. Because when I have these feelings of me being an imposter, I think that it obviously like hinders my progress because I just don't have enough confidence in myself or in my ideas, or I just don't think my ideas are valuable or, or that I'm not smart enough. And so if I had more confidence in myself, I think that things would have gone obviously like better. But I have worked on that a lot more in the past few years. And I've been trying to convince myself like, yes, I'm capable. Yes, I can do this. <laughs> but yeah, it's always hard, you know. So I think that I would have given that advice to, to myself. Uh, another advice, probably like, prioritize my mental health over work mm. because we tend to overwork sometimes that obviously takes a toll on your mental health so kind of like be more compassionate about myself and kind of yeah take care of myself rather than just overwork and be in lab forever <laughs> sticking around to pre-Cornell or beginning of Cornell self, but you were saying that your bachelor's, your background was in physics and biology, and now you're working in biomedical engineering. What was this transition like for you? The The cultures of these fields seem to me very different. Yeah, physics is definitely like a very different world from what I am doing right now. I think that I was, you know, when I started starting physics, I had this idea of what it was like. And then I realized it was not how I imagined it, which is fine. Like it happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I became really demotivated throughout my career. And when I started taking biology courses, I began to gain that motivation again. Mm. So I eventually realized that my passion is not was not physics, but it was more biology. So I, I enjoyed more the biology side, and more things that have to do with medicine. So for my PhD, I really wanted to get out of the physics world and explore more things in medicine and biology, because that was what really made me happy. Mm -hmm. So I applied to a bunch of programs in the US and also in Europe, very different programs, I remember. I applied to neuroscience, I applied to immunology, biomedical engineering, 
yeah, very different things. But I think that eventually I made the best choice because I didn't want it to waste all the knowledge that I had in physics. <laughs> I, I wanted to use it somehow. And we work with high power lasers and, and optics. So that's where the physics comes into play. But we also do like very, like a lot of biology stuff. So I just found out that it was kind of like the perfect fit for me because I was able to like merge both of my, my knowledge in physics and biology. But in terms of the culture, it's so much different and so much better. Oh, good. In biomedical engineering, <laughs> even though it's engineering and sometimes engineering has this stereotype to be kind of a very male-dominated culture, you know, very, very difficult. And physics is just like that, very male-dominated. Uh, so it was hard to me to find an identity in it because I, I just felt very different from everyone who was, like, studying with me. And with biomedical engineering, I found more and more people who are like me, you know, women who have a lot of different interests, all sorts of people, you know. And that's what I really like, especially Cornell is it's really diverse in comparison to other places I've been. And that's one of the things that I like the most is that it's really diverse. It does promote diversity a lot. I feel myself more identified with the people in there. Like I see I see more people like me. So that's something that has made me really happy while I've been here. Looking back to when you were studying physics, what is something you liked and what is something you disliked? Things that I disliked, I would say, I, I know you, you, you did math from mm -hmm. your PhD and I admire you for that because <laughs> math for me was a nightmare. Mm. Obviously, like we as physicists, we don't go as hardcore in math as you guys but I did have to take some courses that were pretty advanced in math of course <laughs> and for me like very advanced linear algebra and logic and all this stuff and <laughs> for me that was super hard I really struggled with that but I all my friends were like geniuses and they were very good at it so I just had to ask for a lot of help in those courses where the math was really advanced. On the other side, I think that at the end of my career, I was starting to take the courses that were the main reason why I started to study physics, like quantum mechanics, uh, general relativity, you know, astrophysics, things like this that are really, really interesting. And those were like the best parts. Quantum mechanics was just like blowing my mind every time. <laughs> it's amazing. I was fascinated by it. Of course, like I didn't end up doing research in that or anything because I was more interested in biology, of course. But quantum mechanics was just amazing. And I still read a lot about uh, physics, just like, you know, psychom, physics psychom, like Uh, Stephen Hawking, Brian Greene, Carl Sagan, you know, all this like big, big psychom people, because it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I still love to hear about the discoveries they've made with this super particle accelerator back in Geneva. 
the gravitational waves discovery. That was super exciting for me. I was so happy. I I really like that stuff. It's just like I don't want to do research. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can read it. I can be happy for them. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe switching gears then, since you started talking about science communication, I'd love to talk a little bit about science on tap. Oh. What is it? And uh, what made you want to be involved? Um, Science on Tap is an initiative that was born through GWIS, which is Graduate Women in Science. And it was the idea initially of a postdoc. Her name is Tisha Bohr. She's in the vet school. And she just like started the whole thing from scratch. (laughs) And it was a complete success. But it was just her at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I think like for two years, she managed to pull this amazing show with Cornell professors. But the whole thing was geared towards the Ithaca community. So everyone was welcome. And it was held at North Star. I don't know if you've been. It's a restaurant in Fall Creek in downtown. And you can just go and grab a drink, like a cocktail or a beer and sit there and learn about science. So that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was very uh, regular at the show. I went every single time, last Wednesday of every month. Uh, and then I was involved with Jewis, and I said I wanted to work with Science on Top. I wanted to help Tisha like organize the shows. So I eventually ended up helping her a lot, contacting you know the speakers, setting up the venue. It had a ton of logistics. We used to put flyers everywhere. Yeah, we used to also give like gift cards to the speakers to get a dinner at, at North Star. And um, all of the funding for that project was through grants. So we also had to write grants and things like that. And so Tisha eventually uh, dropped the project because she was uh, leaving for her next position. And so I was now the officer, like the main person for Science and Tap, along with another student. Her name is Michelle Kelly. She's an, a PhD student in physics. And so the both of us is starting to organize the show, the logistics and all of that. And pandemic hit and we had to not do it anymore. Right. <laughs> yes, but it was amazing. We had a really good time. People loved it. It was a complete success. It was packed every time. So yeah, it was wonderful, fantastic. After the pandemic, we were trying to adapt it to a virtual kind of uh, format. But eventually the year came to an end, like the, the spring year. And I I, uh, I dropped from GWIS because I was having too much responsibilities in the lab. So I didn't I didn't have time anymore for all the logistics and the organizing and the planning. So eventually someone else took over. But what I've heard right now is that they haven't been able to to adapt it to a virtual setting. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that if if it's going to keep happening, probably like after safe for everyone to come back and and do like an in-person show, probably that's going to happen again. So you were saying, you know, it was fun and it was packed. What do you think made it so successful? 
I think that the format, just being able to go and grab a drink with your friends and sit and just hear about science, that was something that people really liked. Yeah, just, it was very informal, right? Like, you were there sitting at a bar listening to a very successful scientist from Cornell talking about the research in a way that people could understand. And I think that's what people really like, you know, science being accessible for them, understanding what is actually going on, you know, in in like very advanced research. We had people from math, like explaining all their very difficult research. We had people from astrophysics, uh, biology, immunology, um, even like agriculture. And we were we tackled some like very controversial topics. We had one science on top that was about vaccines. We had another one about GMOs. So these are things that people are really interested to know about. And believe it or not, Ithaca has a very diverse community in terms of this, you know, polemic issues. You have a very liberal side. You also have a very conservative side. So you have people that support vaccines, people who don't support them, people who support GMOs and people who don't support them. So it was also a place for people to debate. But it would it would become a little bit, you know, heated sometimes. One time we had this professor in psychology and her research is about race. Mm. And uh, as you can imagine, that one became really heated. So, yeah, I think that what made it so successful was the format, for sure. So, for me, science communication has multiple parts. One part is just, like, relaying science for the general public and, like, making it accessible. But then there's also including the public in the scientific process, which is more of, like, a citizen science kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And I saw in your tweets something about catchathon is that right yeah <laughs> it's a way to kind of like have people join in to like speed up alzheimer's research it sounds really cool yeah as you mentioned i'm working on a citizen science project it's called style catchers mm. uh, what does it mean so i told you before that i work with this technology that can help us see very tiny things in the brain and one of those tiny things are capillaries or like the tiniest blood vessels in the brain. And turns out that in Alzheimer's disease, capillaries are sometimes plugged with a white blood cell. Mm-hmm. So they get plugged, they get stuck, and blood flow cannot go through. We think this is one of the mechanisms that is actually contributing to the decreasing blood flow um, that I was talking about before. And so uh, this little plugs in the brain we call them stalls and uh, we need to count the amount of stalls in the brain to figure out like if stalls are increasing or decreasing with the treatment that we are administering the mouse but counting the stalls is a very very tedious process and we don't have like an algorithm or a machine that can do it for us so we have to do it manually we have to go through each movie and count the stalls manually, and it just takes a ton of time. And so this initiative came on, like, why don't we get people (laughs) to do it for us? And so it was born, 
it was actually a grant from a foundation, Bright Focus Foundation. They fund Alzheimer's disease research to implement this platform called Style Catchers. And so if you go to the website, you're going to see one of our movies with our blood vessels. And you're going to see a vessel and they're going to ask you, is this vessel stalled or is it flowing? And then you click stalled or flowing. And that's the game. Basically, they show you movies and you just click flowing or stalled. And so eventually we get all the data. And that data is we eventually get the number of stalls in a data set. And so it has been really fun because it has helped move the research a much, much faster pace. Now we can produce data much, much faster. We don't have to count it, you know, manually. So so it has been really fun. And a lot of people really like the game. And mostly because they just want to support Alzheimer's research. They may have a personal reason, like somebody with Alzheimer's, or they just think it's really fun. And we have actually published papers with data from stall catchers. And the stall catchers players are, are part of the author list. <laughs> so if you want to have your name on a paper, just <laughs> play stall catchers. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, people love it. There has been like a whole public relations thing going around, social media, Facebook Live. I think I was in a Facebook Live last week about this catchathon, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a, a full day of stall catchers uh, running. And they were actually going to test an AI. Right. Like um, artificial intelligence and that can catch stalls. <laughs> so that would be amazing if this can be developed. Right. I was going to ask, this sounds like a machine learning algorithm in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so so we're going to see like how effective this AI is in, in catching stalls. That will be amazing. That will help us a lot too. Because, you know, machines can just be working all, all the time, all the day, all night, all the time. Right. Partly scary, but in this particular situation, right, <laughs> this sounds like we could have so much training data for this thing. Exactly. I agree with this. Partly scary, but <laughs> in this case, I, I, I like it. So, <laughs> What is your favorite part about science communication? My favorite part is to communicate with people and kind of teach them about what is happening in whatever field of science. Um, because I think that's a key part of you know, implementing policies that can help the world, right? The The reason why we have policies based on science is because scientists decide, okay, I'm going to go out of the bench for a second, and I'm going to talk to people about why this is important, right? And so I think it's so important for issues like climate change agriculture, vaccines, all of this is pure just science that we can communicate to the world, but we just don't know how, right? Because scientists have this very technical language, very complicated papers, like nobody is going to read those papers, right? And so uh, a lot of surveys have shown that people are more willing to have trust in scientists if the data is open to the public, 
But I don't think it's like the raw data, like, hey, take this scientific paper and just read it. It's right. open for everyone. No, I think it's people explaining the science in a way that can be digestible and understandable for everyone. So science communication is extremely important, I feel. And I feel it's just like something that we as scientists should do better because a lot of misinformation and and, and things that are really affecting us, for example, with the COVID-19 pandemic, all the misinformation going on, we as scientists like need to step up and say like, hey, this is, you know, this is what is happening. This is the data. These are how, how vaccine works, but in a way that people can understand. Because if they don't understand, they're just not going to trust us, period. A very inspiring place to stop. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I love this chat with Nancy, and it was really interesting to learn about some of the current research on Alzheimer's disease, which, given this disease's prevalence, might be close to home for some of you, as it was for me. I hope you learned something new and curiosity-sparking about biomedical imaging, multi-photon microscopy, or how you'd like to engage with your community. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.